Welcome to episode 27 of Behind the Sport. What a long weekend. Target West here in Western Australia running four days of fantastic rally action. Still a bit sleepy and tired, but here we are again. Um, Brent joins me over there somewhere. How are you today, mate? Hey, dude, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, massive weekend. Uh, beautiful weather for it. Like, you know, maybe a bit hot, but um, first proper hot weekend we've had in, in this year, I think, or, you know, since since the end of winter. So, now bring it on. Beautiful weather for it. Massive yeah. crowds down at the uh, down at the city sprint there as well, which is, you know, just awesome. Yep. Yeah, no, it was, um, it was good. Like, the crowds everywhere um, in places you really wouldn't think there'd be any crowds and you know about 15 20 minutes before the cars would roll through um just 100 people would appear out of nowhere and off they went so yeah that was great um gonna jump right into our guest uh this week is uh cameron edwards sheep stations so um I don't know if that's a subject we can talk about, but um, we'll see what happens. Um, Cameron Edwards uh, does work up at the WA Sporting Car Club as uh, I think he's the events manager, um, yep. his official title, um, but is also a pretty fierce competitor. He also uh, was in quite a bit of e-racing and that, so... Yeah, going to be good to have a bit of a chat with him and find out a bit more about him. Um, and he joins us for episode 27 right about now. Thanks for joining us, Cam. How are you tonight? Uh, doing very well, thanks, Shane. It's uh, getting to the middle of the week as we lead up to a race event on the weekend. Yeah, no, and I do appreciate that, uh, you know, it's obviously a busy week for you and to take time out to have a bit of a chat with us, uh, especially this time can be uh, a bit bit flustering and frustrating for us media people going, oh, you come and talk to us. But, you know, but you have sort of said to us a few times, you know, if you ever want a guest and you're a bit short, give us a yell. And um, so we did do that because I'll just quite frankly, I couldn't be bothered organising anyone this week um, just because I was just in a slack mood and I was like, well, who can I get? Let's get Cam. That's it. Scrape the bottom of the barrel. Yep. No worries. Cool. Uh, then I wouldn't call it scraping the bottom of the barrel, man. Like, so you, you're you're an absolute gangster on Formula E. Massive history of competition. Uh, in the throes of, of hooking up a deal for a, a, a national series run, which we've, uh, we'll probably talk about at some stage if we're allowed. Um, fast no matter what you're in. Fitness freak with your volleyball. Are you still doing volleyball stuff? Yeah, still do. I haven't done a lot this year because of COVID, but yes, yeah, still involved. Yeah. See, volleyball coach extraordinaire, um, an events coordinator. So all the things that turn us on about local motors, motorsport. Yeah, well. Yeah. So I wouldn't say scraping um, the bottom of the barrel. There's not too many people that that we know locally that can tick all those boxes. Maybe you know one or two, but you know, looking after all us bloody knuckle dragging drivers hanging around the track. <laughs> Being seriously competitive, your own right. Driver, coach, fitness guy, and about to step into a national category ticks a lot of boxes for me. Well, let's hope that uh, stepping into a national category comes to fruition. Yeah, it's uh, some twat ate a bat a little while ago, and it stuffed everything up for us. Yeah, that's it. Yep. 
Um, let's get to know you, Cam. Um, whereabouts did your motorsport journey start? What first gave you that bug to get involved with motorsport? Uh, well, it definitely came through my father. Uh, when we were, well, when my sister and I were growing up uh, as kids in Melbourne, we, um, we lived just around the corner from the then Toyota Motorsport um, race manager. And uh, I went to school with his daughter and they were into go-karts. Uh, at the time. So this is when I was well, 11, 11 or 12 years of age and uh, Dad had known him for a long time, Tony Niavani, and he got us into go-karts and ever since then I've never looked back. I, I got the bug as soon as um, Tony and Lisa took us to the go-kart track um, for a bit of a drive and not that I was any superstar world beater when I was a 12-year-old kid who'd never driven anything motorised in my entire life, uh, but I had the bug. It was just one of those adrenaline things that, you know, you can go as fast as you like and as fast as your brain will allow you to compute the physics of motorsport. So, yeah, once I was once I'd started, I was hooked. Uh, I remember when we first got our go kart. I used to bug Dad weekly, I reckon, to uh, come on, let's go and practice, or what event can we go to? And uh, that started the journey uh, along the way. And I haven't looked back since. I like even now, I have uh, ants in my pants to want to put my bum back in the seat and go driving, um, and I still continue to work hard to try and do that. It's just sometimes uh, work gets in the way and life gets in the way of wanting to go driving and there are other things outside motorsport that I'm interested in And uh, but I, I still would give up just about everything that I do outside of motorsport to put my, my bum back in a seat. The um, first time you ever went competitive racing, how did you do? Uh, oh, you know, you run down towards the back of the pack as a as a newbie when you know, a twelve year old kid. Um, some of the guys and girls that I was racing with, uh, I raced against the likes of um, Michael and Greg Ritter and uh, Melinda Price, uh, who had started racing when they were seven and eight years of age, uh, and. When you start at 12, you know, you're that three or four years behind that you takes a while to, to get into the groove and, and understand how things work. So even for new kids today, you know, kids want that instantaneous success and it takes a while and you've got to do your yards like just about in every sport to um, get, your, get your feet, get your groove and, and work your way to the front. How long did it take you to get up to the front? Uh, took me about oh, probably seven or eight months before I actually had my first trophy. Um, and I don't know who was more excited about my first trophy, whether it was my dad or whether it was me. I mean, 
it's it's one of those things where you look back on the size of the field, especially when I was growing up as a kid in go-karts, you know, back in the early 80s when go-karting at Oakley Go-Kart Club was huge. Like a club, a club run would have 17-plus juniors in the category that we were running and even the senior categories were having, you know, big fields like that. So to actually finish on the podium, you actually had to work really hard um, and it didn't come easy. You know? So it's very satisfying when you know you can look back and you can beat some of your friends that you've formed along the way and you look at all the hard work that, you know, that my dad put into me to to get me to that point. You know, we didn't have a big budget. We just ran with what we could and um, it's just, yeah, it's quite satisfying to uh, to get that first bit of woodwork, even though, you know, you look back at it now at, at the age that we are now and you go, you know what, it's like a $50 trophy and it's like, yeah, but when you're a 12-year-old kid and it's the first thing that you, you've you done in a sport that you're really getting into and want to continue going, it's a big deal. And I can even remember that even now I can still even remember my first race win uh, at, at a track out in Brooklyn in, in Melbourne and like I had one of my mates behind me the whole way for two or three laps towards the checkered flag and every time he would give me a little tap you know he was playing Morse code like Craig Lowndes used to do um, when he was running you know Morse code on the back bumper to say come on hurry up hurry up hurry up but it's a matter of just keeping your mind calm and focused on what you wanted to do and the relief of winning even your first race, you know, it's just like, you know, finally, you know, I, I can do this and I want to continue doing this. So after karting, where did you head? So after karting, well, just before I finished go-karting, I actually moved to Perth and um, with my family, uh, with dad entering a business and then, it was into Formula Vs. We we made some friends uh, when we first moved over here who were up at the race circuit, and so we went up there. And Formula Vs were just starting in WA, so we got involved in that category of racing, uh, and we built our own car. So rather than there wasn't a lot of cars around in Perth at the time because it was a new category, so you couldn't go out and buy one. Uh, so we decided to build to build one. So we um, got the design off one of the guys who had one over here and and built up a chassis and started building things together for a twelve month project for Dad and I. And I can honestly say that Dad probably put in seventy five percent of the work and I put in a lot less. Uh, but that's how I got into into cars at at, um, at Wanneroo Raceway and. I haven't looked back since. I, I still do the odd go-karting uh, drive, but I've been in cars since then. And you know, we were fortunate enough in our first year to to find um, Jerry Prosser, who was my mechanic for a lot of years, uh, who was involved in the club as well. And he built my motors and gearboxes and helped me prep the car. And we were fortunate enough to be Rookie of the Year in our first year. And I think we finished fourth in the state title 
uh, which was awesome. The um, Formula V category certainly comes across as a very family orientated category. Um, yeah, these days you've got like the likes of the Welsh family, uh, you know, with April and Connor and Bruce racing. Um, yeah, and there's a few other families going there through there, yeah, whether they be competing together or, um, you know, mechanical helping out, you know, like being the pit crew and that sort of thing. Is that something that sort of was uh, that? drew you to that category as well was just been that, that sort of environment i think they just evolved uh through time um we got involved in formula v because it was within our budget to go and do that uh and we went down the avenue of building it because we could space it out rather than having a big outlay straight away uh and over the time of being with Formula VWA, it has become that big family orientated sort of category and the community within those guys and girls who are involved is is awesome. Uh, and not a lot of categories that I've done beyond Formula V are like that. Um, so it's a credit to them. And even the Formula V community around Australia is, is very much hands-on help out. Yes, it's still very competitive, don't get me wrong, I mean, racing against the likes of, you know, Anthony Lees and, uh, you know, Rod Lisson and Dave Campbell now, uh, Dave Kaisley, you know, it, you have to be on your game. You can't – you can be as friendly as you like in the pit paddock, but you pull your helmet on and you drive down onto the race circuit and they're just another driver that you want to beat. Um, it's just as fierce – uh, on the track as any other category. It's just probably in the paddock area, we like seeing, well, the category itself likes seeing everyone out there and does anything and everything to make sure that happens. And um, that's just a credit to Formula VWA that we have that environment. And it definitely was one that we enjoyed over the journey. Uh, Dad and I used to travel a lot with a group of people from Formula VWA when we went east, and that that just made the experience more enriched and a memory that you cherish as you grow old. In your um, racing so far, what's been one of your biggest highlights? Oh, biggest highlights. Um, a good highlight. Pardon me. A good highlight. <laughs> the good highlight. Uh, the good highlight. Okay. Uh, the other one later. <laughs> oh, some good highlights. You know, um, finishing, you know, when Formula Vs was just 1,200s, they weren't 1,600s. Um, being able to go to two different circuits uh, within three years and finishing in the top five and, and running with the leaders, uh, that was a big thing for Dad and I and, and Jerry and Kay, who were, who were the mechanic, my mechanic and that, you know, we were a pretty low-budget sort of team uh, and only spent money on what we needed to spend on. And I know there's a lot of teams out there who do that, but to go away to Nationals, you know, back in the early 2000s when it was just 1,200s, you know, we were racing against grids of 40 cars. And to run at the front in Formula V where... You don't have a lot of power, but you have to be strategic to be able to compete with those guys who ran 
who were a lot more competitive and ran a lot more than us and had been in the, the game a lot longer than us. That was a big highlight. Um, racing for fast lane uh, up at Wanneroo with Brett Lupton. Um, you know, I ran with them in the late 90s and being able to drive one of their cars uh, as one of their drivers and, you know, going close to winning the state championship in our first year was was a highlight. And then, of course, you know, I've driven at Phillip Island. I've driven at Bathurst. Uh, I've even driven a Formula Ford at the Australian Grand Prix. So some of those, those are the sort of highlights that you keep, you know, being able to drive at those major tracks uh, in front of big crowds. I mean, Bathurst is the mecca of motorsport in Australia and to be able to drive around there uh, is, you know, you give your right arm just about every day you could compete in an event there. Um, and it's just one of those iconic places. Uh, and at the F1 GP, not many people can say they competed at the F1 GP, but I can say that I have, and that's that's a big highlight for, for Dad and I, and I, I share that with him, and that's something that I cherish. Bathurst as a track, um, yeah, as you say, it's pretty, it's pretty much, I guess, hallowed ground for motorsport fans in, in Australia and uh, yeah, potentially around the world for some people. Being able to go drive, you know, your first time driving at speed around those, you know, some of those bends are actually a lot tighter than they look on TV. Yeah, how how was your adrenaline and you know what was going through your head when you sort of get up to those corners that you know you look on TV and it looks you know you got two supercars going wide through there and it looks so easy, but then you sort of get up there and it's it's a lot tighter. To be perfectly honest, the the first time that I drove around there in anger in a race car, as much as the adrenaline was pumping. Probably in the back of my mind, I was just going, please don't bin it. There's nowhere to go. Um, it's all concrete. And you hear a lot of them, a lot of motorsport people talking about Bathurst, of how it bites you, you know, and we've seen over the years drivers being bitten by the concrete walls. And it's, it is one of those things, you know, going up, heading up to the cutting and then going through Reed Park and Solomon Park down to the Great that's narrow and it's a lot narrower when you're actually there than what it seems on TV. And when you're at speed, yeah, it becomes narrow and you don't realize how close those walls are until you've actually done it. Um, it takes a lot of confidence and I can understand when you hear main drivers saying, I'm not confident in the car to go faster because one slip and there's no coming back. It's it's pure concrete. And to have that confidence, you know, I've been there now three times, four times, and every time I go back, I find more speed and I can see, you know, why it takes people who haven't been there before, it doesn't matter what category they run, where it takes some drivers longer than others to actually have that confidence up there and, when you do have confidence, it's one of the most rewarding circuits to drive on, um, in, even in the small little things that I've done up there. It's just pure joy. Makes you want to go back more and more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
got taken up in a course car, a Mustang, um, just up half of the mountain, and uh, the the hill climb champions, and that was that was hairy enough, you know, and that was just one car going up at a time, you know, with hill climbs and yeah, just the yeah you know, the, the corners are just amazing, you know, and and it's full credit to anyone that races up there and can put a clean lap in um, at speed, you know, the, it's yeah the the determination oh. and the don't like to say uh, I won't say the balls because um, you know a lot of people that compete up there don't have them, um, but in terms of you know just that uh, ability and skill um, to be able to do that and the mental ability as well is huge. Oh, just looking at Cam Waters' pole time at Bathurst this year, I mean that's that's on the edge, like, and that's confidence in the car that Tickford Racing had given him and put under him to be able to do that. Even if you go back to Greg Murphy's Laugh of the Gods, you know, that's that's a guy driving a car that has pure confidence in knowing what's going to happen underneath him in, in, in the situations. And for that track, you know, talking with Garth Tander and Stephen Richards and, and those sort of people who, you know, I'm friends with, it's like you can understand when they come back and say, you know what, I, just, I didn't have the car underneath me to go better because if you don't have it underneath you at Bathurst, it bites you hard and it bite, and that's it. There's no, there's no coming back. Turning to, I guess, the uh, not so amazing memories of motorsport and competing, what'd be something that you would rather forget uh, with with your racing? Definitely throwing away the Formula Ford Championship when I was driving for Fastlane. Um, you know, we were in a position going into. Um, the last two rounds to to be right in there fighting for it. And I remember it was a wet day that was drying and uh, I, I was on the pole and I remember looking up the dummy grid um, to another competitor that uh, Garth Tander was engineering for and Garth had made the change to put the both rear bars on the back of the car. He said, no, nah, it's going to dry. So he, he was talking with his um, his driver. And I remember calling Dad over and saying, go grab Garth and tell Garth to put the bars back on my car um, so that we could have some grip in the dry. And uh, I didn't get the greatest of starts because being on pole at Wanneroo in the rain, um, there's not a lot of people run over that side of the circuit. So the circuit was quite damp. So I remember falling back to fifth or sixth coming down into turn seven. And I went to make a move down the outside and we got to the braking zone and the car in front of me wobbled uh, on some wet stuff and tapped me and put me into the grass and sent me into the wall. Um, and that was the end of my championship. It was over. There was I'd ga- I gave up so many points that day that I wasn't going to get it back. And I look back at that and go, that was a stupid move. I didn't need to do that on 
uh, in the first race. I just needed to get through and get into a groove and get going, even though I'd made a, a mockery of the start. So that's probably one of the um, greatest regrets that I've got and, and a low light for me. Um, other than that, I remember aquaplaning down the main straight at Phillip Island in a Formula Ford. That, that wasn't fun. Um, yeah, flat out fourth gear, um, just about to come across the start line and I must have hit a puddle the wrong way and round she went um, and into the wall. So there's a couple of those little low lights there where you kind of go, yeah, you know, I would have done it different if I had my time again, but you, you kind of live in the moment and, you know, um, as a race car driver, you, you're always pushing the limit to try and go faster and we were making up ground, so you kind of keep pushing and then, yeah, just caught me out. So they're probably the two main ones that I've had. I haven't... Um, you know, haven't done any sort of like really high-end stuff where you think, oh, I'd, I'd do something a lot different. But for the events that I've done, yeah, they're the two main ones that I'd I'd like to push rewind or escape on the on the keyboard and to say let's let's try that all again, shall we? And then see what happens. But uh, yeah, it's one of those things in motorsport. Yeah. Um, speaking with you know the likes of Mick Perkard and Adam Marjoram, you know, who have had some pretty big shunts. Um, yeah, and, the, and their go-to thing was to jump back in the car as soon as they can. Is that something you did straight away, was to jump back in as soon as possible to go racing again? Or even just... Yeah, definitely. Um, even stemming from the go-kart days when we were kids uh, and having accidents and, uh, and things like that where you see some big accidents, uh, I remember as a... As a youngster, I, at, when I was starting out in go-karts, I watched um, Michael Ritter cartwheel at Oakley Go-Kart Club and actually go over the fence and land on the bonnet of a car. And um, everyone was rushing over to him and he was all right. You know, he was good. And I've never seen Graham Ritter um, run so fast um, in my entire life because Graham's quite a large man, but I think he beat you know, 99% of the people over there to see Michael. But one of his first things that I remember him saying, I've got to get him in a cart as soon as I can. You know, I've got to get him going. And even to all my friends who have raced with carts and cars, and it's it's one of those things you just, you've got to get over that fear that it was just at that time that that's when the accident happened. And motorsports are just a funny sort of sport because one minute everything can be rosy and, you know, even though you're on the limit and pushing, everything's great. But then the very next split second later, it can turn to absolute hell and you can have the biggest accident in the world. Uh, so getting back in the saddle and getting back in the seat, I think is important just for your own confidence to, to know that, Yes, all right, that happened, but it's not a regular occurrence that happens. So you've got to have that confidence again. And some drivers do it better than others. Um, some drivers get in and go, nah, this is um, not for me. Or, no, I don't want to put myself in this situation. And other drivers don't bat an eyelid and go, yep, all right, it's part of the game. 
I'm okay. And safety's come such a long way over the short period of time that I've been involved in motorsport. So uh, drivers are a lot more protected uh, and things like that. Even though you know you're hurt the next day, you've got to try and get back in the seat as quick as you can. So what other categories have you competed in? So I started off obviously in go-karts, um, then moved to Formula V, and then I did Formula Ford, like I said, with, with Fastlane. Um, I've had an opportunity to do some HQs. Um, they're a bit of fun. They're totally different driving style to anything else I'd driven at that point in time. Done some production car racing, uh, which has been great. I've even driven the, the XLs, the XL Cup cars. Um, they're, they're another great category to, to be involved in. Uh, and I've done some V8 production car racing as well, which is which is exciting itself because, you know, obviously driving the V8 with a lot of power and, and, and things, and that's also stemmed on to now doing some instruction work in V8 production cars, uh, which is, again, it, my, my background is open wheelers, light cars, purpose-built cars, but to hop in a production car, it's, it's another discipline, again, that just mentally you have to get your head around. All the principles are roughly the same. But just understanding, you know, I'm, I'm used to driving around in a 500-odd kilo car with me on board and then you hop in a production car that's 13, 14, 1,500 kilos and some of the physics are a lot different that you have to get your head around. And But they're, they're just as much fun. So if I could do more, I would be. <laughs> I'd be doing a lot more. So Back in uh, March, obviously, motorsport and... A lot of the world got shut down, um, and one of the biggest things that came out was iRacing um, and other platforms just boomed big time for sim racing. And um, you jumped, you jumped into a bit of racing. I, I don't know about what you did before that, but um, all of a sudden, you know, like sending clips of you doing some magnificent laps and overtakes and racing stuff in uh, private messages and. Um, yeah, how do you find the the sim racing? You know, compared to, you know, I know you spend a bit of time at racecraft, so at least you got some decent gear under you under you when you're doing that. But um, you know, how do you find it in comparison to to the real cars? I think sim racing has come a long way from when it first started. Uh, as a racer, you know the. The computer games that come out where you get to drive cars and you get to drive different tracks, you know, most racers love doing that. Now, whether it's on a hand controller or whether it's been on a keyboard or uh, on a PC, you know, you, you do it. Um, but now with the, you know, the IT world advancing so fast, driving on The Sims is getting closer and closer to being just as good as reality. Um, all the F1 teams, all the top teams around the world, they all have them for a reason. Um, and, you know, I didn't really get into too much of the sim world until probably, you know, towards the end of last year, 2019, when, you know, my, one of my mates, Fran Zestabau, had he had a sim at home. So we used to go over there and, Spend some time you know, just doing some endurance type stuff where we could 
you know, tag with drivers and, you know, um, swap the seats and we would set all the different scenarios of, you know, having less power, having less grip and compared to the computer and trying to compete. And now with John Lee at, uh, at Racecraft, you know, an opportunity came to come and do events with him and you try and take a lot of the principles that you'd learned from being in the real world and putting it into the computer game and some of it doesn't work. <laughs> um, but most of it does. Like your race craft of being around other cars, your uh, strategic thinking of how to set up a pass, uh, your your understanding of race lines, your understanding of uh, how to drive the car, whether it's a sprint race, whether it's an endurance race, how to be able to do regular lap times is so similar to what it is in the real world. And the sims are just getting better and better to be able to convert that into what it would feel like in a real car. Uh, and some of the leagues that John's got at Racecraft are awesome. Um, we do endurance races, we do sprint races, we're running all different cars and the community is there. The, the, only, the only downside of sim racing is there's no consequence. You know, if you crash, yeah, you push escape and you start again. Whereas in reality, it's, the, and it's getting your head around that sort of concept uh, and understanding that there needs to be different levels of sim racing. And obviously the higher up you go, like the, the, the faster drivers, the better drivers that you meet, there's, there's less crashing. There's more reality of what it's like in the real world. Whereas at, down at the beginner level where because there's no consequence, some of the drivers who don't have real-life race experience don't understand the concept that you can't just send it and do the big dive bomb because you take out someone. And in the sim world, it's there's no blood, no foul because you're not hurting anyone. You're just hurting yourself in the game. But there is a core group that work with John at Racecraft at, at, in the sim world and you can have some awesome battles. Um, I've had some in some of the leagues that we've had there and it's really great because you can get out and have a banter straight away because, you know, or you could be racing people all around the world and you haven't left the room that you're in, but you put the goggles on or you get into the watch the TV screen and, you're racing against someone who could be half a world away, you know, a totally different time zone, but it's just as competitive. And it's like most races, the red light goes out and it's on. So there, it's a great, it's a great concept. And I can see why it's booming around the world with the COVID pandemic. Um, Cause people don't have to travel far. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to go down to the track. You don't have to make sure there's an event on. You can just email, text, whatever, a couple of mates, and away you go. You know, you're into it. Um, some of my my mates that we race on the PlayStation uh, just at home, and we set up rooms and scenarios and have um, a Discord going so that we can all chat to each other and the banter that you can have 
amongst friends yet still race hard, still race reasonably fair. I'll say reasonably fair. There's a little bit of push and shove. Um, but that's just, you know, you can be strewn around the whole metro area and yet you're all in the one about you, Denver. <laughs> Don't pick on Denver. It's just too easy. Shouldn't pick on them. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, you're one of the lucky people that uh, not only gets to race cars, but gets to work in motorsport. Um, although some people might say maybe not so lucky sometimes, you know, it depends yeah. what's going on, you know, it depends who you're dealing with. Um, but, yeah, I would say, you know, being able to make a living working in motorsport when you are so passionate about it is pretty cool. Um, you know, how did you end up in the role that you're in now, being the race events manager? And, you know, what, what does your job entail? Um, how I ended up here. Okay. Uh, I just applied for the job advert that the Sporting Car Club put out um, four years ago. And uh, I actually, it was actually longer than that. I actually applied for the job five years ago and initially I didn't get it. Um, They gave it to to someone else, but that person, for whatever reasons came about, didn't last the journey. Um, It was a pretty short journey. And then... So I reapplied and uh, I got down um, to the final two for the second time. And uh, I suppose my background of uh, being involved in the sport and running events outside of motorsport helped me get this role. Um, I've been involved with volleyball for uh, almost 20 years and well, actually over 20 years now, and I spent probably a good five years working for the State Sporting Association here in WA, conducting events for schools and um, and running events for clubs and things like that. So I was used to that whole environment of setting up an event, getting all the people that you needed to help, uh, booking the venue, making sure you had everything, all your ducks lined up in a row to quack at the same time. Um, and that sort of helped me with applying for this role. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to be uh, appointed back in um, July 2017. And it's been a challenging journey over the time. Uh, sometimes you have to you know, you have to be that ogre that doesn't give the right decision or make the right call to some people in motorsport. And sometimes it affects some of your friends that you've, you know, you've raced with for years. But at the end of the day, I suppose my knowledge of what it's like to be a driver um, and what needs to happen has, has been an advantage but it's also been a disadvantage because I'm a driver at heart and I can't drive when I'm running an event, which is um, quite understandable, Uh, but I do miss it. But also when I go to an event and Brent would probably agree with this, that at the end of the day, I'm very happy when 
you you finish the day and all the drivers are happy. They've had a great day. You know, you get to hear their stories about how their day went. Um, and you build those sort of relationships, you know, from, I don't know, the back, the back room where everything's all happening behind the scenes. And um, you do your best because you know if something's going to happen at an event, you, you use your knowledge as a driver to how, what's the best way around that. Um, and that's sometimes making a hard call and sometimes making a call that, eliminates or reduces the drama that could blow up from some of the drivers. It's not always easy. It's a fine line. But uh, I do enjoy the event days. I do a lot of I do a lot of steps when there's an event on. I have my step counter on and it goes through the roof. But uh, And I get to see a lot of people enjoying a sport that my father introduced to me back when I was a, a teenager and I'm still involved with it. So I'm I'm quite fortunate. So I have to ask, how protective of the cones are you? <laughs> oh, we make a little bit of a joke about it with the cones, uh, especially for um, the point-to-point series that you know we all set up uh, a couple of years ago as a as a rally type stage through the venue and using the venue, uh, all parts of the venue for people to enjoy. You know, Jack's Hill. Uh, the main circuit, um, the infield area, and even the skid pan to a degree. It's, it, I don't know. We try not to orphan those those poor guys that have to stand up to to guide the drivers. But some of the drivers um, have a tendency to find them easier than others, uh, and um, it's all just a little bit of tongue and cheek type thing where we don't we don't want to orphan them so that we can keep them for the next event so that we don't have to be short. I've got a cracking photo of you from one of those point-to-point events coming down through reverse through the S's with this lonely cone on the back of the car (laughs) and your face was not amused. (laughs) No, I think that I remember that photo um, driving the work you, the the grey you, you it looks like it's been clapped out and hanging out the back of the paddock for a lot of years, but... Yeah, it's one of those, because the course that we tried to design um, incorporated not only technical stuff but high-speed stuff, it's, I don't know, it's just one of those things where generally when a cone gets knocked over, it doesn't actually get booted off to the side of the road. It actually gets booted onto sort of like the race line for the next competitor and you've got to quickly race out there and remove it and put it back in place so that uh, you don't impede the next person coming through. But, uh, yeah, it's um, I do enjoy the point-to-points. They're, uh, they're unique in a way that we do run down through the S's in reverse and, uh, you know, we can't do that as a race but we can do it as a single-car event and Motorsport Australia have been great in allowing us to do that. Um, and the competitors love it. That's just a new challenge even for the regular races to be able to go, you know what, I've come down there in first. And it it actually is a great section of road from a driver's point of view to go in reverse. And um, it's just a pity we can't race that way because it would just, it would be awesome. 
I'd love to see, you know, like the big field of saloon cars going down there in reverse or, you know, even the HQs in reverse down that section. Oh, we'd fill up the infield. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and we used to be able to do that um, many years ago uh, in the 90s. We were able to run in reverse. I do remember the events running, but with the way that the safety has evolved over time now, uh, it's just... Our circuit, unfortunately, is just a little bit too unsafe to run down there with, you know, 25 angry saloon car drivers or 15 HQ drivers, you know. Um, and I know that we're trying really hard not to pick on Denver, but Denver would certainly have to lift a lot more than he normally does in his car if he was going down there in reverse. So, um, You could put a creek crossing in just to make sure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So... Uh, and the new the new bus stop that's in there for the motorbikes awesome. coming in coming in reverse, it it allows a little bit more safety, but it also would bite people coming the other way. So yeah, it's one of those things, unfortunately, that we can't do. But safety's got to come first for the drivers and and the crews that are out there, the volunteer officials who are out there. So uh, we do it while we can with the point to point and. Hopefully, people will embrace it. I know we did it uh, for the Targa West this year. We ran a point-to-point layout with uh, Ross Tapper at Targa West um, just last weekend. And I, I look forward to seeing what um, what the feedback is from that because there was some really good, cool cars coming down those S's in reverse and uh, be interesting to see what feedback they've got from that. Now here's the uh, the nervous part of the the, the episode. Mood. I hand control over to Brent to have a chat with our guest. That's right. I'll just remind Brent before he starts that uh, I am one of his uh, sponsored drivers, so be nice. <laughs> and what does that give him a license to um, be more brutal? Because I am I haven't got my Lux Performance T-shirt on, mate. So I'm doing the right thing. You could you could even put the uh, you know reallocate his parking bay for his trailer. You know, yeah, well, you can always put it up on the old infield pit area up yeah. behind turn five if he's not nice to me. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think that's a fair deal. <laughs> he's got himself on mute, so um, <laughs> we can't hear what he's. Saying. I was just say, put it next to turn seven with all the photographers, and I'll be one step closer <laughs> to a cracking house. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. It's um, let's try to get some enthusiasm going. Get get stoked and, and turned on about local motorsport. Firstly, um, fierce competitor, uh, driven all around the countryside, driven all sorts of cars. What's your favourite car you've driven? Oh, I'll ask I... this in two ways actually. What's your favourite car you've ra- driven or raced? Driven around a circuit, not on the road. And then what's your favourite race car? Because they can be two very, two different things for different reasons. Very true. Um, okay, so I'll probably say that my favourite race car that I've actually driven at a race circuit would have to be a Formula Ford. Um, pure built race car, single seater, on the edge of your seat type stuff. Uh, I haven't done a lot of wings and slicks racing, so... I'm sure that some people out there will say, oh, there's better cars that you could have driven, but I wasn't in a position to take advantage of that. So 
I do enjoy driving a Formula Ford um, car. They're just they're just awesome to drive. They're raw. I think they're fantastic. I, I agree. Yeah, favorite race car. Um, oh, I would love to have the opportunity to drive some sort of GT3 uh, race car, whether it be a Porsche, a Ferrari, a BMW. Um, those sort of cars would be, I think, just an amazing bit of kit to drive. Um, yeah. uh, good thing to agree. The uh, you know Formula Ford very raw, but still achievable for for state level guys. And then yeah, GT3 just all the grip, all the power, scary as hell, but um, controllable at the same time. I think it'd be fantastic. Yeah, most definitely. And you know, I've had fortunate enough to meet some people around the world that have um, worked in higher level. And one of my good friends who works for, works in Germany at the moment, who's done some work with BMW, I'm always on his case about whenever you need a test driver, mate, just give me the call when I'm there because he works yeah, with the be there tomorrow. BD3 cars and the, and the Enduro cars. And it's like, yep, no problem. So. Oh, man. I like, like, probably my favourite car on uh, project cars too would be the, the – uh, the Limp 4 GD3 car. That's just wow. Yeah. It's a cool car. Um, cool. Uh, any any records to spruik? Anything to really, you know, uh, be proud of? Track records? Oh, funny you should mention that as we were talking with Shane about the reverse direction at, uh, at Wanneroo Raceway. I still hold, to this day, the lap record for the reverse direction short circuit at Wanneroo Raceway in the 1200 VW. Formula V because the very next year after I set that record, we weren't allowed to race it there anymore. So I still <laughs> hold it. Still I still I still claim to fame that I'm a lap record holder at Wanneroo Raceway. Uh, and I have the the framed time uh, in my collection here that uh, just to prove it so that no one can dispute it. Um, even though we can't run that way, so it'll never get beaten oh, in my lifetime. Cool. Yeah. Um, it's still a lap record. Uh, I did hold the lap record a couple of times uh, on the long circuit in Formula Vs, uh, but since then um, it's been broken several times by several people. So, um, yeah, but that's my probably claim to fame for a lap record. So you, with... Um... With, speaking of short course and, and short course reverse, but short course in general, it's my favourite section of the pack to, of, of the track to drift that that flat out up turn four and then switch back into the short circuit. Will we ever get to use that again, even if it's just tuning days or speed events or whatever? I know the wall, the taxi wall sort of stuffed it, but uh, is there anything in the works we, there? You might we be probably won't be allowed to run an event, a race event on the short circuit while the concrete wall is at the end coming off the short circuit back onto the long circuit. Yeah. Um, and we probably still, Wanneroo Raceway, we probably still need to do some work with the old um, hall pack tyres that are up through the short circuit uh, to make that a little bit more safer for the drivers. They've been sitting there for a lot of years, so they won't have too much give in them. Uh, if someone was to hit it. Uh, it's a shame that it's it's not there. I actually enjoyed the short circuit as well when we did get to race on it. I find it more of a 
a driver's circuit rather than uh, you know the wide open that we have on the long circuit. Um, you do spend a lot of time wide open when you run the long circuit at Wanneroo and the short circuit coming from the short circuit back onto the long circuit. Um, if you like the car sliding around underneath you, um, that is one corner that you can have a lot of fun with. And if you get it right, you can make up so much time. Yeah, and if you get it wrong, you've got that giant spoon drain on the outside. That's right. <laughs> for you. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, wicked. Oh, that's um, good to know. Yeah, uh, you don't. You probably don't think of it as much as we probably should do. Yeah, that the old pit pits on the other side of the short circuit there, and those hall packs and that retaining wall all through there. That's a huge amount of mechanical and uh, dirt moving to sort of bring that up to spec these days. So yeah, it's uh, sort of sucks because it is a cool part of the track. But at least we're still using it for drifting, and and that's you know no one can really moan about half the track getting destroyed through there at least. No, and like seeing some of the drifters go through there, you know, they take full advantage of it. It's a, it's an actual cool section of road um, to run around. So, and it's good to have a really big stop going into that hairpin if you're racing. Um, you know, you, some of the categories are going quite fast up through that left hander that's absolutely to then get to the very top and have to jump on the anchors and you're at the top of a hill, so you've really got no road to help you slow down. You've stopped going uphill. So then do a, you know, virtually a, what is it, a 170 or 165-degree turn at the hairpin, you really have to be able to pull your car up and, yeah. and hook it in. So. No, it's, it's cool. Um, so you do a lot of driver coaching, ride day sort of stuff as well. Um how do these how do these days work for you and and sort of walk us through like a typical day you know quite how it goes getting people in the car and how you talk to them that sort of stuff. Uh, so a typical day, whether I'm working for Fast Track V8 Race, which is the Eastern States firm, or whether I'm working for V8 Drive Day here in Perth, um, most of the days start pretty much the same. Uh, arrive at the track. Uh, reasonably early and, and help set up. Um, for VA Drive Day, I generally head out with one of the other instructors and go and put all the cones and brake markers out um, and set up the circuit so that it helps the other instructors uh, while they're out there, they're driving. Uh, and then it's, um, we have a quick debrief of all the drivers um, just to remind each other of some of the things that we need to do to look after each other when we're out there and making sure that we do the right hand signals and, uh, and things like that. Uh, and then it's into the, into the cars and give them a warm up. Uh, we usually probably average probably about three or four laps as a warm up uh, in the cars as the instructors, just to go out and make sure that we're happy where the, the cones are and uh, make sure our cars are nice and warm get the tyres warm or get some sort of heat into the tyres before the clients go out. Um, and then if I'm with um, Fast Track Vero Race, um, I'm just one of the instructors, um, George Elliott and uh, Richard Luffer, the, the chief um, instructors for Fast Track Vero Race. 
so we have a brief with them and then they give us the layout of the day. For V8 Drive Day, I'm actually uh, being given the honour of being the chief instructor there. So I then go and do a little bit of a debrief or instructional uh, welcome to all the clients uh, up at McCracken House and just run them through some of the things that we want them to focus on uh, in regards to what the cones are out there for, how we want them to use the steering wheel, uh, which a lot of people think that, well, most people who drive a car know how to use a steering wheel, um, but just the sort of input that we want to uh, install in them to make their experience better. Uh, we talk about the pedals, how to operate the manual. Some of the clients that we have uh, are as young as 17 and never driven a manual in their life. Or they could be the the executive who's, you know, the CEO of a company who's been driving an automatic for the last 15, 20 years um, and hasn't driven a manual for that long. So it's just going through some of those things to, I don't know, refresh their memory. Um and then we talk about, uh, you know, have a little bit of a joke around with them about the, um, the USB stick where they can record their experience um, and making sure they marry up the story that they're going to tell their mates compared to the one that's on the USB stick that is sort of like reality of what they actually did. Um, some of them are there for, you know, as we say, they're there for a career change to see if it's worth being a full-time race car driver and some of them are there because they've got a gift from some awesome family members or awesome friends to say, you know what, we think that you'd like to go and drive a race car. So uh, it's, yeah, it's a great day. And then after that, it's down with the clients and um, into the cars uh, and we talk them basically through uh, once they get strapped in to the car and what they're about to experience and reminding them to be smooth on the car to help them uh, go faster during their experience because one of the big things that we try and focus on is that as an instructor in that sort of environment, we're not necessarily there to slow them down. We're there to help them go fast but in a safe environment where, A, they're not putting us as the instructor in danger, but also not putting themselves in danger. Because you've got to remember these cars, are, you know, they're somewhere between eighty dollars and $100,000 each. So to go and bin one um, is quite an expensive exercise. So, And the cars would do a Bathurst every event. So a lot of the, some of the big questions from all the rev heads is, oh, how much horsepower are you putting out and all that sort of stuff. And, they're a little bit disappointed when the number that we give them is a lot lower than what they expected. And it's like, but we have to, because if we pushing out the same amount of horsepower as a V8 supercar, we have to be rebuilding them every week um, because that's how much they do. But that's an expensive exercise. So they are, while they are fast, they're, they're tuned down a little bit so that they can last that long and be a little bit more user-friendly. Yeah. So what, what's um, – because they're, they're all on the 18-inch slicks as well, though, aren't they? So the Fast Track V8 um, race guys, they're on the Dunlop supercar tyre. Yep. And the V8 Drive Day guys are on the Porsche Carrera Cup Michelin tyre. Yeah. Um, so what's, what's a good lap time out of one of them around 
Oh, for for a, a client or for an instructor? Oh, we'll say an instructor, yeah. <laughs> say an instructor? Yeah. Oh, I think the instructors would probably be doing somewhere in the 67s around yeah. there in one of those cars. Um, that's it, I guess. Uh, for, a, for a client, if they're, you know, anywhere around the 70 to 71 mark, they're, they're usually usually pretty well on it um and the reason that they're probably at that sort of time is because the brake markers for both companies aren't set right at the very limit no, you, know, you, you don't want them to be in that environment and, and it's no. still fast especially if you're not you know it's not like it's your car or you've you you know you're used to it or yeah yeah and the brake you know even like I say, a, you know, I say a sixty-seven. That would be a, an instructor that would be still using those brake markers, but going all the way to the nth degree of it. You know, accelerating right up to the brake point, and then delaying slightly their foot application on the brake. Whereas we get the the clients to brake at those points because we need to have a bit of a safety net that if something goes wrong, that the instructor can, you know. I like my job as an instructor, so I don't really want to be in a car so that the boss goes, well, you've been in a car, I can't have you back. So yeah. um, so what's it's the one scariest of those, thing that's happened there then? Have you, you know, what's one of the scariest moment? I'm hopeless as a passenger, so. One of the scariest things is um, a client that thinks that they're the next Peter Brock, Craig Lowndes, Garth Tander type thing and on lap one is already pushing the limit. Um, it's a matter of trying to get them to to build up to the speed rather than break a land speed record on, on lap one. Um, that, but the, probably one of the most scariest things I've had as an instructor is um, going down into... Uh, Turn six at one raceway, and my client selected first instead of third. Oh. And uh, yeah, we had the biggest compression lockup of my life, and um, we were ninety degrees to the road heading for the inside ripple strip. And I'm thinking, if this bites, we're we're going over. And um, fortunately enough, uh, we didn't. We missed the ripple strip, and we went into the sand and spun around the other way, and. I'm fortunate that there was no other client directly behind us at the time because they would have had nowhere to go um, at that speed. So that's probably one of the scariest ones. Um, I've also watched one of the other instructors have a mechanical failure at Eastern Creek um, on the flip-flop on the short circuit. He was t- we were both out doing hot laps and I was following following him through the flip-flop and I was probably... I don't know, two to three car lengths behind him, and he had the um, he had the left, right, rear, upright fail um, as he flipped to go right to come back onto the circuit, uh, right on the crest of the hill, with a um, a client in the passenger seat. So he would have been flat out third gear, probably 160 kilometres an hour, and the thing just spun around on a five cent piece and. How it didn't hit the wall is beyond me, but um, I remember all the instructors coming back to the house that night in Sydney because um, we video 
uh, all the hot laps and uh, yeah, it, that that was on rewind quite a few times to see what was going on. So um, that's so probably scary. the two most scariest um, incidents that I've had. So with the with the driving and coaching, um, the feedback's pretty important. Um, and, and I know the clients um, sometimes it's quite a short session and it's more of a, a thrill ride or, or a, a, an experience than trying to school someone up. But I know also know that some of your clients you have the the repeat offenders I should say or repeat clients that that are trying to you know learn a craft a bit and that's that's their way into it before they go into a you know leasing a car or, or something like that um what how do you how do you try to so say you, you got a noob or a novice with you how do you try to relate feedback steering input what the car is doing have you got any ticks or trips or formulas or, uh, or a way to try and teach someone what's going on there the the biggest the biggest thing that we try and get across to our clients is not to rush. Um, a lot of our clients who come in to get instruction think that, oh, I'm in a race car, I've got to do everything fast and I've got to be really rough with the car. So it's just trying to calm them down and make them realise that if they drive it like their normal road car, they're, they're already 50% ahead of half the field. Um, and not to rush. So one of the biggest things, especially with some of the young guys, is that they they try to rush their gear changes. They try to do them super fast, and then they miss, or they select the wrong gear. Um, and then the same with the the steering. We all know that pushing the the, the accelerator pedal makes you go faster, but some of them don't realise that. If you actually are on the brake pedal going into a corner, you actually will travel faster eventually because you can get your car to turn. A lot of them are getting into that point where they slow the car right down then as soon as they turn in, they want to put their foot straight on the gas and they don't just want to put it on, they actually want to push it all the way to the floor. And then they wonder why, you know, they run out of road or the car gets all sideways and things like that. They're just, they're trying to do everything too fast. So it's one of the big things that I learned when I first started instructing when I started with Fast Track and a good friend of mine, Stephen White, was the was the head instructor there and just having a chat with him and he just trying to relate of, you know, carrying corner speed by being on the brake and then accelerating out of the corner rather than trying to accelerate into the corner where you know, he and I both come from open wheel background where the open wheelers, you can be a little bit more aggressive. You can actually accelerate through the corner, but some of the bigger cars, you've got to actually accelerate out rather than actually in. So that's um, that's one of the hardest things to try and teach uh, some of the clients who come through. But generally, most of them are, are just, they're overawed by the experience of being inside a V8 race car and, and actually flogging around, I suppose. Um, and they look, and the cars all look great. They're all finished so well. Um, yeah, both both companies do a great job of, you know, the the cars are wrapped uh, and they look professional, um, and they're well maintained, which is which is half the battle, and it just adds to the experience for the client. And I think that's a credit to both of them for the customer service that they provide, and it makes our job easier as an instructor because. You know, we are sitting in proper race seats. We do have proper harnesses on. 
we have the intercom so we don't have to yell and scream too much um, and we're able to communicate with the with the client and half the time the clients are just wrapped they get to there's no policeman standing at the end of the main straight with a radar gun telling them to slow down so um, that's always a good thing well and then that's and that's um, you know, that's a really valid point I think a lot of people don't realize it um, some of the speeds might not sound massive but uh, you know 80 k's an hour around the bowl is actually fair hooking around the bowl you know there's no road you can do that sort of thing on so it's it's um well a lot of people are even surprised that you know even if they get turn six right at Wanneroo Raceway and they they crest the top of the hill they're going to be doing north of 200 kilometers an hour in some of that in in either of the cars from either of the companies so and for someone who drives or races regularly 200 kilometers an hour doesn't seem that fast but for the Average person who's used to just driving on the road, 200 k's an hour is is hooking along. You know, you, you're talking an Olymp an Olympic swimming pool every second. You know, that's fast. So when things go wrong, things go wrong quickly. But um, a lot of the time is when we come over the top of the hill like that, or even if we're going at Eastern Creek or. Uh, even at Phillip Island where the brake markers are set, most people realise exactly how fast they're going and they're actually on the brakes before we call yeah. it. So they're aware of it. So oh, That's cool. Um, sort of expanding on, on that uh, you know, training piece, and, and you talked a bit about it with the, um, you know, talking about having a car under you around Bathurst, having faith in the car. Um, with, with yourself, you're, you're obviously pretty competitive and, and you um you know, you've already learned that knack of being able to give that feedback. Um, what sort of feedback do you give there? Like, what do you, um, you know, obviously the ultra modern cars, there's a lot of data and you can tell wheel speed and brake pressures and all that sort of stuff. But in, in general, in layman terms, if you were out there in someone's road car at like a tuning night and you've, you've jumped in as an instructor, you came back, what sort of advice or feedback would you give someone on, on something to change or something to look at in a car if you're trying to get a bit more out of it? I think the biggest thing is to look for just their braking pressure. Um, a lot of people get to the point where they just want to jump on the brakes as soon as they get into the braking zone rather than just squeezing on the brake uh, firmly. And a lot of the feedback that we give to the clients when they're doing the drive days is instant because if they get a corner right, you want to say that they've got that corner right know good turning um good acceleration out of the corner unwinding the steering wheel and using all the road um they then understand that all right they've done it once correctly and they've just got to try and mimic that again and i suppose that's the hardest thing like even on the weekend when i was instructing it's one of the raceways probably one of the easier tracks to learn because there's only seven turns so while you think, oh, there's only seven turns, but you and I would both know driving around that track, seven turn the turns at Wanneroo Raceway, turn four, turn six, you know, even turn seven, it's technical. You know, you've got to have it technically correct to get it fast. So if they can not rush and build themselves up by each lap, then that's the best advice I can give. It's not trying to be 
land speed record stuff straight away. You're not going to be fast straight away, um, especially if you haven't driven the circuit before. Um, so by being patient enough to build yourself up and understand what your car can and can't do is probably one of the biggest things. Um, it's harder in some of the younger kids because, uh, or the younger generation, they want to go fast straight away. Uh, and they just don't have necessarily have the patience to build themselves up. But if I was doing an instruction at any time, it's a matter of that's, Get out there. Let's get into the get into a rhythm, get into a groove, and then we can build ourselves up. You know, breaking one car length later than from lap to lap is going to build you up, and your lap times are going to consistently start coming down. But there's got to be a point where right, you can't go any deeper than this because the car just won't pull you up. Um, and in a race car, you can virtually get to the same point all the time, and one of my mates over in Europe says to me all the time, the slowest part of our car is the driver. Our, our, our car can go as fast as any other car out on the circuit. It's just that our driver can't get it there. So the driver has the greatest input of how fast the car is. And um, I just, I, my personal opinion is people just try to go too fast too quickly rather than just building themselves up. You know, it takes a lot of skill and a lot of seat time to do now, if you look at supercars, you know, where they do their top 10 shootout, it takes you know, a lot of skill and a lot of seat time to be able to string one lap at wheel um, mm. in a short time frame. So, and not everyone can do it. You know, we've seen it in the past. You know, even when you look at Bathurst, you know, Shane Van Giesbergen was on, coming into the chase, was on target to be on pole. And the smallest mistake coming through the through the chase, and even Jamie Wincup did the same thing. You know, cut across the grass. So it takes a skill and an effort to be able to go fast straight out of the box. So, oh, absolutely. Um, so two more questions before I, I flick you back to the the uh, dapper looking Shane. The uh, the uh, competition driving school comes up every couple of months or every six months or so. Is it twice a year at at one? Yeah, generally twice. A year. They're going to run another one in December this year. Yep. And is that um, are you involved with that in in your role and in, with your, all your experience, or is that a? How's I have been in the past. I wasn't involved in the last one. Um, we had a group of instructors who could come out there who are all qualified and have done a gazillion laps around Wanneroo Raceway to know what's going on, and their the level of experience is is varied, but. It's all pretty much similar. They've all done different circuits and raced, like I said, in laps around Wanneroo. So uh, I do get involved uh, from time to time. Um, generally not as the as the, the chief instructor, just as one of the other instructors along the day. I, I usually um, give that to one of the other guys to do all the um, main lecturer or information type uh, deal for that event. I will step in if I'm needed to, but uh, it's good to just hand it around and have a different voice. So it's not my voice they're always talking to about stuff. So, and everyone brings a different spin to what we're trying to get out of them at the end of the day, anyway. So, um, yeah, it's a really good, it's a really good school, and it's a really good day. Uh, people of varying levels get what they want out of it. Um, from aspiring race car drivers to people who just have a good road car 
you know, a good daily driver that they just want to get used to for a track day and be able to be quite consistent. So it's a great little concept that the Sporting Car Club have going. Ah, brilliant. Um, and last question is one that I ask absolutely everyone that I talk to, uh, especially racers. Have you got any weird superstitions or, or weird things you do before you get into a car or before you line up for a race? Oh, yeah, I do. I I, I do have a bit of a, a weird, well, not a weird, but a, a regular one that I do. When I'm racing open wheelers, um, I always get in from the left. Um, I never get in from the right. Just, I don't know what it is. It's just. Isn't the gear lever on the left on a Formula Ford? No, the gear lever is on the right. On the right. Okay. So I don't know if it's a European thing or, or stuff like that. Um, yeah, I just, I have a tendency to get in on the left and that's just, I suppose, my brain saying, look, all right, I'm about to hop in an open wheeler and go. Um, other superstitions that I have, like I'm usually one of the first ones in a car ready to go. I mean, I know I've, some of my mates are a are last-minute um, dash to get in the car and get strapped in, and I'm sort of like the opposite. I'm, uh, I like to get in the car and get comfortable in the seat and get strapped in and make sure I'm all strapped in and, and just kind of zone out um, from the rest of the um, people that are around the car and around the team. Uh, I suppose I, I went through a phase of left glove on before right glove, but I kind of don't go there anymore. Um, whatever happens, happens. Uh, and one of the things that I do when I, I do know that I do regularly is that when I am racing, um, having had several of my friends <laughs> do do this and this um, makes me not do it. They've uh, selected the wrong gear when they're pulled up to the grid. Um, and even my good friend Stephen White and Stephen Richards, must be a Stephen thing, uh, in their first race in Formula Fords, um, I remember Stephen White doing it at the Adelaide F1 GP. He was on pole in the Formula Ford and put it in reverse uh, to start with. And I know Stephen Richards told me the same story. He did it when uh, he started in Formula Ford. His first race in the Formula Ford, he pulled up on the grid and put it in reverse. Um, and the lights went out and they went backwards instead of going forwards. Luckily enough, neither of them had a big crash. But... A big thing for me, doesn't matter what car I'm in, whether it's a open wheeler or whether it's a tin top, is I pull up probably two or three rows before my grid and make sure that I put it in first. And once it's in first, I leave it there. I don't take it out. <laughs> That's a bit I don't of a. Know how many times I, I you do the whole? Yeah. You're not seeing me do it in the, in the simulator, but yeah, look down at the gear lever, make sure it's there, double check it, then get a five second penalty because you've bumped over the line anyway. So. Yeah, and it's, I suppose, for some of the open wheelers before paddle shift came in, because the the throw in the gearbox on um, where the gear stick is in those open wheelers is quite small and quite compact, you know, first to third, you know, you're talking five or six mils across, you know, you're not talking a huge throw. 
Um, so to make sure you're in the right year at the right time, I think is very important, especially off the line. Absolutely. No, wicked. Well, thanks heaps for um, for talking to me. You know, we've probably gone way over time. Shane's probably going to murder me again. My wife's going to murder me. Story of my life. Depth just varies. Um, <laughs> but no, um, absolutely stoked to talk to you. Looking forward to two-day race meeting on the weekend. Um, looking forward to uh, we've got Night Masters in November and yeah. then into some uh, tuning days and, and training over the over the break. Yeah, no, the last the last two events coming up this weekend and then the 14th of November. So, and then, then the 2020 season will be finished for um, racing here. And uh, yeah, we'll be looking forward to having a bit of a break before we start off in 21. Fantastic. Thanks, man. That, um, that didn't go too badly. Like, he was pretty, um, pretty well behaved, which I was. He was behaved, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, maybe that threat of putting his uh, his little shop all the way up on top of that hill. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I'd be, I'd be happy out there. I'd stand on the roof. I'd still get to see racing. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Um, looking back over, you know, your, your race career so far, and uh, we say so far because, you know, the, the rumours around getting a national seat. Who's... Um, yeah, you've mentioned your dad, and you can mention him again. Absolutely, who's been your biggest support in your racing career, and you know, a couple of people maybe that have you know been able to push you and keep you on the right track and help you along the way. Um, definitely, dad. Um, my dad's probably my biggest supporter when it comes to racing. He's been there since day dot when we started, um, and I've probably only done. I could probably count all the events on one hand of the events that he's actually missed me driving. Um, and, you know, he's always in my ear and and keeping me on the straight and narrow of things to think about. Um, Jerry Prosser, um, who was my mechanic for many, many years in Formula V, uh, him and his wife Kay followed me right through and even you know when I wasn't running Formula V were always heavily involved and keeping me I don't know grounded uh, and and appreciative of everything that they've done um, it was unfortunate that uh, at the start of um 2019, we lost Jerry, um, and that was a that hit home for me for everything that he'd done over the years. Uh, whether it be a national title, whether it be a state title here in WA, whether I was racing a different category elsewhere, um, he was a big loss. Uh, and I'm still in touch with Kay, um, and she's always been in my corner, no matter what. Even when uh, things were going pretty bad, um, or you become the black duck of the racing world because you've done something on circuit, and she was always one to stick up for me. And I can't thank her and and Jerry enough, and and their family for all the support they've done. Mum's in there. Um, Mum supports me. She's not a motorsport fan, 
she thinks, why do you waste all your money on driving a fast car? And it's like, mum, it's just a, I'd rather go drive a fast car than, you know, go and get blotto every weekend or, you know, go out and do um, drugs or be into something un, you know, unlawful type steel. And I suppose, you know, they're, they're the main ones that have been supporting along the way. Um, and if I didn't have that support, and most races, you know, you don't have that support back away from the circuit, that, that makes it a little bit more of a challenge. Uh, and there's been varying people with sponsors along the way who have helped me get to where I've, you know, the experiences that I've done. Um, even recently with, um, you know, with Paul and Charmaine Pissaris who helped me get to Bathurst um, in the XL um, in 2019, you know, just their support and their um, openness to, to bring you into their little family team and, and, and help you get to, to events. And uh, I, you know, I can't thank them enough. And even when I talk with, you know, my mates, you know, Steve White, I talk with Garth Tander or Stephen Richards, you know, just about things that, you know, they've all done it at the high end and yet they're still open enough to talk to you about the little things that you're doing at state level or in Australia. And, you know, it's those sort of friendships that you build over many years of driving that that's that sort of network that you, you want to hang on to. Um, I've only just started over the last few years getting in touch with all my old go-kart crew when I was growing up as kids, you know, Mark Fakusik and Melinda Price, um, uh, Owen Osborne and Pip Jones, you know, we're on a Facebook page and, you know, the Retro Karting Australia um, group are, are getting together where all the go-karts are pre-2000 and everyone's just sort of like gone full circle, you know, everyone started off in karts as teenagers and gone on and did cars and travelled and did whatever they're doing and, now we find that, you know, later in life, we're now going back to the karting scene where it all began. And it, it's those sort of networks that you just, you can't, you can't put a price on and you can't, you know, it's just so valuable and that sort of support is just awesome to have. And um, I know there's a lot of families out there who have that and, you know, there's always, you always see those fathers and mothers who are travelling around with their their kids who are, who are making it in the world, you know. I only have to look at, you know, you look at Clay Richards, you know, Steve Richards' son, you know, third-generation racer and the support that Steve and Ange give him to go racing and, you know, Garth Tanner's two kids, um, they're all starting off in go-karts now as well. So it's that whole family thing. And I know that um, Dirk and Dale Tander was very supportive of both Garth and and Leon when they were carding and you can't you can't thank family enough for that. Now, if you were able to have any uh, motorsport person uh, in your passenger seat as your co-driver or you know mechanic, teammate, driver, you know assisting you in your career, and that person could be from any era, any discipline of motorsport. Who do you want there? To always have in your corner as a co-driver or oh, 
that's a tough question, Shane. That's you know, there's you could go you could go to the highest end of the scale with some of the the people that you see around, you know, um, you know the Campbell Littles of the world who are who are engineering gurus to, you know, even to some of the guys that I've been around motorsport with, like the Dick Savvies of the world and you know the Brett Luptons um, who have been there and done it, who can guide you and. Um, yeah, and mentor you along the way. That's that's a tough that's a tough question to put one person in that seat. Um, yeah, I, I can't honestly answer that because yeah, I think anyone who's willing to invest in the time uh, and effort required to put into a driver to get the best out of them, whether that's from a you know a mentor point of view, whether it's from an engineering point of view, whether it's from, you know, a sponsor point of view who's willing to back you and and show faith in you that you can chase the, uh, a passion that you're wanting to do every day. A person who's willing to do that is invaluable and um, I would take any one of uh, any person who, who's, who fits that bill to to help me achieve a goal or achieve a dream that I've been wanting to do since I was a little kid. So, yeah, I can't put one single name on that, mate. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Again, it's, you know, it's a question we throw and, you know, even guests that have listened to the podcast before and they they go, oh, you know, yeah, we, I was thinking about this before I came on and but now you've put the question to me, I actually, you know, don't know, you know. They, you know, it's it is. Um, you know, I know it is a tricky question to ask because you know it is. There's so many greats and you know known and unknown that people could put in there. And um, yeah, how you say it, you know, if they're willing to put in the time and effort, then yeah, they should be on the top of that list. So yeah, and you see it around the world. You know, you only have to look at the. Um, the Mick Doohan era of when he was at the top of his game in, in motorbikes, um, you know, and Burgess went everywhere with him. You know, whatever bike he was on, Burgess was with him. And then the same when Rossi came along, you know, Rossi was with, you know, took over from where Mick left off. And when, as soon as he jumped to Yamaha, he took virtually his whole engineering team and, and mechanics with him because he had that faith in them and, to find someone or a group of people who are willing to do that for you as a driver, you, you can't you can't put a um, a label on that. You just if you find that support network, you you, you want to hang on to it so that because um, everyone's rowing the boat in the same direction. Then you know you don't have different people trying to pull you in different directions. You've got you know whether it's two, three, six doesn't really matter if they're all in your corner driving you in the same direction and have the same passion, then it could be anyone. It could be big-name people. It could be the average Joe Blow that no one knows. But if they're doing the right thing by you as a driver or any sportsman, then you, you take them with you. You take them on that journey. Well, we're going to wrap up episode 27 now. 
Um, thank you very much for joining us. It's been great to chat with you. I was actually chatting with you away from the track as well is pretty cool because, you know, as you said, you're always running around um, at those events. And, um, yeah, a couple of times we've tied you down to chuck you in front of the camera and then you've raced off again to you know, deal with whatever you've had to deal. So, yeah, really do appreciate your time, especially on race week. Um, last chance, anyone you want to say thank you to? I heard the clanging of the pots in the background. Maybe the wife might need them. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Nah, that'll nah. hint. <laughs> I, think, I think Rebecca's getting a bit hangry at the moment because um, dinner's cooking. But uh, I, I find it it's quite amazing you say it's episode 27 because uh, 27 was my first race car number. And oh, um, That's it. It's me. Um, it was my first go-kart number, but it was my first race car number. Uh, and I chose that because at the time, um, uh, Alan Prost was 27 and um, Alan Jones won his world championship with 27. So uh, I started off with 27. So episode 27 to have me on, that's that's well done, mate. I think all the stars lined up for that. So congratulations for that. Now, I, to thank people, you know, obviously you got to thank mum and dad for everything that uh, they've helped me achieve um, with driving, uh, especially in my sport. There's a lot of people behind the scenes, you know, that I could name that um, have helped me get to where I am today and, and what I've done, whether it's through motorsport, whether it's through volleyball, um, you know, through coaching at club level, right through to coaching at international level. There's a lot of people who have uh, been my support network and been my um, sounding board, I suppose, to, to move forward. Uh, I've enjoyed all the friendships that I make. Um, you know, I, I do enjoy my banter with you at Race Day, Shane. It's, uh, it's always good to you know, talk about a lot of things and um, and even, you know, talking with Brent and, and being involved with Lux Performance and, and his help along the way to hopefully next year to be further along with a, with a regular drive uh, somewhere. Uh, in a championship would be really cool. Uh, there's a few doors that are opened and hopefully I can uh, take the step through those doors and, and, and do a little bit more driving before I eventually have to hang up the helmet for good, um, which is, you know, there's still a few boxes that I want to tick before I do that and hopefully that will happen in the next year or two. And there's a few more years to go, yep, and far out. <laughs> Mate, keeping up with these young kids is getting harder and harder, even in the sim yeah. world. Give up, give up keeping up with them. I've been embarrassed enough in Excels by them. Don't worry about them. Okay. Do your own thing. Keep driving. Look at Kenny Smith in New Zealand, man. What a champion. Still yeah, that's true. Yeah, very true. And, you yeah. know, as, as I said before, your, your 50th as well. And if I look half as good as you in 10 years' time, I'll be stoked. So. Oh, thanks, man. You know? <laughs> Just wear a hat. Give it a Beautiful. Thanks again. Uh, thank you again, Brent. Um, of course, you can catch us, uh, all your favourite streaming services. We've just been added to another one, which um, has been kept a little bit secret. Uh, unfortunately, it's not available in Australia yet. So for Australian people, you miss out for now. But uh, Amazon Podcast has actually picked us up. So ah. we're now available in America via Amazon Podcasts. 
um, as well as iTunes, Spotify, everywhere else. But, of course, the best place to catch up with what is going on in motorsport, behindthesport.net. Um, we're getting some amazing grassroots news coming through, and um, that is just going to grow and grow and grow over the next uh, however long. Um and we're actually number four in the Google searches for Australian motorsport podcasts. So how good's that? We are above V8 Sleuth. We are above uh, the Grand Prix and everyone else. So um, that. Um, not bad for a couple of mugs, eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Far out. And like the the behind the sports stuff, the uh, the ride up on the go karts the other day. That was killer. Yeah, yeah. Looking, you know, we're getting a couple of um, good people involved. You know, Chris Mitchell's coming on board to do karting stuff, and yeah, he'll also be doing some of the motorplex stuff as well. So, um, yeah, let's uh, slowly get a bit of a team on there and uh, get more and more news out there as we can. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Sweet, of course. Time to go. Time to get this podcast out there, and time to get ready for race week. Catches all uh-huh. later. Thanks, guys.